listening to you're listening to the last of the Crosley Hotshot fans. <laughs> Listen, you talk about the Crosley Hotshot uh, that, that I once and I, I'll, I'll here you, we'll, we'll give you true dynamic trivia, and I'm sure that Don knows. I once worked at a television station. Now listen carefully. It's a TV station and a big radio station. It was a big combined operation. And uh, they had all kinds of engineers. We did all kinds of remotes. I'm talking about television remotes. They did all kinds of stuff, you know, like uh, bringing stuff from uh, various uh, city hall meetings and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of it was done live. Now, they had a rule at this station. In fact, it was not a rule. It was just the fact that they didn't even talk about it that they had a fleet of cars which the station used in its performance of its duty. One of the worst fleets of cars ever devised by the sick mind of man. And the reason... <laughs> now, I'll give you a clue. The television station and the radio station was connected very closely and, in fact, owned by the same man but the company that made the cars. Now, what radio and television station was that, and what was the car? Now, think carefully. This is a great name in radio and television. They also made a car. Huh? Uh, yes, you're correct. The, the, uh, the car in question was the Crosley. And uh, I'll never forget one day, this is a little tin can. I mean, if uh, any of you remember what the Crosley was like, it was made out of uh, reprocessed sardine cans made in earlier in Japan uh, <laughs> with some car. Well, one day I got in this car with this engineer. See, we're going to do a remote. And uh, he had in the back of the car, he had, among other things, he had a television camera. Now, that's a lot of weight. And it was taken off the tripod, and he had this thing put in the back. It was, it was the station wagon version, right? So I get in this poor little engineer who's, who was a nice little quiet engineer, like many engineers are quiet little guys. See, so we go charging out because we were sent to this this big uh, this big remote, and it had to be done right now. And it was down somewhere down by the railroad station, which is down by the river in Cincinnati, right? And there's hills there. You got to remember that. First of all, there's hills. Very important. It's like uh, it's like San Francisco. So so Johnny says, "Hurry up, get in. We've only got 22 minutes." So I rush. I sit down in the in the seat next to the driver. Now the seats in the Crosley were roughly the size of, uh, let's say, half a stool that you see at the Chock Full of Nuts, uh, <laughs> and they were little plastic seats, you know. So I get in. I sit down in this little thing, and and Johnny gets on the other side. Now the engine in the Crosley was known as the fish can engine, if you if you remember anything about that, and it was a pressed engine. Pressed, it was it was pressed together. It was a new type of engine, and it had a curious sound to it. It would go ting 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 ting, and it would it would make a little ringing sound. It sounded a little bit like a baby's rattle connected to a rubber band driven mix master. You got it now? So we piloted a car. Jim, this is the kind of thing that makes engineers grow very old before their time. And I might add also talent. Remember, I'm the talent. So I sit in there. And, and why were we going down to the railroad station? Well, the President of the United States was about to arrive. Now, he doesn't arrive often. So 
we go charging down and we we get the car going it actually started which surprised us and and Johnny throws this thing in the first it had a little gear shift knob came out and we go out into the street we get on the street now uh, and turn right and we're going down this hill well we start rolling and Johnny says I can't stop it <laughs> down at the bottom is the are the lights see this little thing is rolling like crazy and and now ordinarily you could stop one of these by sticking your foot out and dragging it uh, but with the weight of the television camera behind us, which weighed more than the car, uh, we had we had problems. See, the weight is pulling us down. So Johnny says, "I can't stop it." He says, "I think I have mechanical brakes. I don't know what I'm doing." So he puts the brakes on full, and you hear this little in the back. Nothing. We didn't slow up. I want to tell you, we're rolling on. I said, "Oh my God, my time has come. This is it. This is it. What an ignominious way to go." I mean, here I am climbing up the ladder of showbiz, and I'm going to get destroyed in a in a balsa a, a balsa <laughs> balsa wood tinfoil Crosley, just like this. Well, we go through the stoplight. At, naturally, we hit the red. We go through the stoplight, and two cars are going in opposite directions, crossing us. It was exactly like you see in the in the old silent. Uh, uh, Keystone Cops things. We went, whoop! One guy went in front of us, whoop! Another guy went, and I saw, I got one brief glance at both drivers as one guy's eyeballs were like headlights. Oh, you know, oh my God, what is this? To begin with, it could hardly see the car. You know, it looked like some, some giant rat or something was running across the street. So, with that point, the two cars, and we just kept right on going. The hill continued. See, we go roaring down this road, we're breaking all existing records to get to the railroad station. All existing. So we get down to the bottom. Now, we had to turn right. This is where it got exciting. Onto a, a, like a little bridge over a road there. We came down, and Johnny says, I, I don't know what to do. I says, Johnny, don't try to make the turn. He says, but we got to go. We're going to be late. If this car keeps rolling, we're going to wind up someplace outside of Portsmouth, Ohio. It's just going to keep rolling all the way down the river. I said, but John, oh, he said, i got to turn because the railroad station is off to the right. And I says, no, no, Johnny, no, no. And we hit the we hit the turn, and Johnny turns the wheel, and sure enough, there I am. Now we're turning right. You got it? I am sitting on the right-hand side. You got it? I looked down, and I, I saw the road receding from me. I actually saw the road dropping away from me. We are now on two wheels. I looked down, and down below me, still frantically driving the car, is Johnny. Well, <laughs> the car, it just laid over like that. Have you ever been in a car that turned over? Well, I want to tell you what happened, if you want to know what it's like. The car went up like that, and he's going around the corner, and I could see people all around me looking. Great, wide, staring eyes, you know. And it was like... In, the, in that instant of, of uh, well, you know, there's a theory that says in, in, in man's instant of mortal danger, his mind has an, a supernatural clarity. You've heard this? He sees things with total, total truth and clarity. It's like a bullfighter when he sees that, that giant horn suddenly approaching his groin, and he knows he ain't going to get out of the way of it. That is the moment of double truth. <laughs> I mean, it's not just the moment of truth. It's the moment of truth, truth. Well, we start to go over on the side like that, and the car just lays over. It's so neat, you never would, would believe it. I look up, and I see the wheels out there, and I'm looking at the sky, and, and we just slid down the street. 
<laughs> the car slid down the street on its side. It just slid maybe 75. We got it stopped anyway. That was good. We slid about 75 feet on the side. And Johnny's still staring at it. I looked down. Here he is on the bottom, you know. And, and he's still staring at the thing. The television camera has flopped over. And boy, did that help. That TV camera tipped us over. The, the center of gravity changed when we started to go. And, you know, the camera started to crawl up the side of the car. And that was it. We went right over on our side, and we just we just put it down the road like that on our side. Well, Johnny, being a true, uh, true dedicated member of the engineering corps, was not going to let that stop him. So the car slowed up and stopped. And I says, "Quick, Johnny, jump up before it blows up." He says, "What do you mean blows up? We're going to be late." At that point, I climbed up out of the car fast. I thought it was going to blow up or something, and the people were all standing around. Johnny jumps up out of the car. He climbs literally hand over hand over the seats. And now we're both on the ground, and here's our little Crosley upside down <laughs> with the wheels still going. It looked like a little roller skate, uh, you know, a little roller skate that had gone mad. At that point, uh, Johnny was frightened. He wasn't worried because we tipped over. The true engineer. He was not worried that we tipped over, almost got killed in the car, and that everything got blown up like that. He was worried that his supervisor, who was already at the railroad station, was really going to get bugged because we didn't bring that camera down there, and we were late in the whole bit, you know, and blew the whole gap. So Johnny says, quick! He says, quick, help me. And he's got the, t- <laughs> he's got a hold of, a, of the bottom of the car now, see? He's, the doors are open, and he's trying to pull it back upright. So I reach up th- without even thinking, see, being, you know, being very dumb myself. I, I reach up and I grab the car, see. So we're both rocking back, and the crowd is watching. Everybody's watching, see. So we, no, not one person, not one person offered to give us a hand. I guess it was such a wild scene that they couldn't put it together. You know, it's like uh, trying to help the Keystone cops when you see them in a movie. You just let it happen, see. So, so these people are all standing around, and Johnny and I are pulling like hell, see. Well, being that I was on television, about 20 people suddenly recognized me. You know, it's like seeing uh, Johnny Carson out there uh, trying to... Uh, <laughs> Trying to repair, uh, trying to repair a bicycle tire, you know, in the middle of a, a road or something. See, so the people start to say, "Hey!" and they're, they're running up to me. Can I have your autograph? I says, "I don't have time for that." And we're pulling like this. And the guy says, "But my kid watches." I says, "Shut up, will you?" And he says, "Well, I always knew you guys in show business were a bunch of bums." Oh wow, I always knew that. Boy, wait till my kid hears this. I says, "Ah, you know what you're doing, your kid. Bring him around, and I'll do it for you. Here, help me." And I pull him like this. <laughs> Well, at that point, the car started to rock, and down it went on its wheels. Just like that. Johnny says, quick, in the car. We run around. He gets in the car. I get in the car. Away it goes. The darn thing started. I wouldn't believe it. We roared into the the station, and we're about about half a block away, see. He's got this thing going flat out, which meant it was going well over 20, 25 miles an hour, you know. This is a Crosley. So uh, we're approaching the station. And, and roaring up the station, Johnny turns to me and says, Don't tell, don't tell, don't tell Carson what it, what happened. Carson was the, of course, the super. He says, Don't tell him, don't tell him why we're late. I said, But we're not late, Johnny. Look at that. We've got five minutes. The whole thing happened in about 12 minutes down the street, the whole bit. See? So he says, Don't tell him, don't tell him. Well, at that point, we rushed out of the car, carried the camera in, and the, the whole show went off just like peaches and cream. They plugged it in, the camera worked. And, uh, <laughs> and and afterwards, I remember the, the supervisor coming over and he says, Hey, how come you got them scratches on the side of the car? 
And uh, Johnny, you know, we had the big call letters on the side. He says, he says, gee, I don't know. It was like that when I got it, Chief. Uh, I don't know anything about it. It was like that, you know, just funny. Well, you ain't heard the last of it. That night on the 6 o'clock news, the rival station apparently had been behind us and had seen the whole Megillah happen and they were, they had, they, instead of having TV cameras, they had film with them. They had a 16 millimeter film. And believe it or not, they took a picture of us riding the car, and it was right there at the 6 o'clock news, right after the Preparation H commercial, and in full color. And at that point, we had a lot of explaining to do it the next day. Oh, listen, before we go any further, and I don't know why I told you that story at a Crosley, it's one of the great traumas of my showbiz career, uh, that, uh, that story. Uh, oh, yeah, well, listen, uh, we've got a little story here that I think might be of some interest to some of you here. Uh, we got a note here from the United Press. Uh, it's uh, Dateline Paris. That ain't Paris, Kentucky, either. It's Paris, Paris. The Paris Fire Departments, what's going on in France, anyway? The Paris Fire Departments annual report today, which they turn out, uh, you know, uh, about what happened during the year before, all the various uh, great calls they had. Uh, Paris firefighters were called out five times to aid persons who got their feet stuck in toilets. <laughs> now I don't know how that would work. I, I uh, uh, that that no 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 that has to be a, uh, there has to be some kind of an explanation about that. I mean each one of those stories must be pretty pretty interesting in itself. You know, when they come pouring in, this guy's foot stuck on a john there, and they try to, well, what were you, well, I, you know, uh, why, I, well, that, you know, I, I have to tell you this. I, I, I had an experience one time that involved a very embarrassing situation involving that very popular, uh, appliance. Uh, yes, many people say it's the one piece of functional, truly functional sculpture turned out in the 20th century. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, I don't have to you know, go into detail about this, but let me tell you what happened if you want to know how you can really get yourself amid all kinds of hang-ups that way. Okay? Shepard has a very important audition. Now listen carefully. Shepard has a very important audition, right? Now, the audition involved uh, a lot of important people, and it was kind of a high-level thing, and, and you have to, you know, you, you have to be dressed a certain way. You don't just go down there wearing your old uh, WMCI good guy sweatshirt and that stuff. It's very official, see. And, well, one thing led to the next, and the, uh, this was the day before, see. He tells me all this. And so, uh, happily and innocently, I, I, uh, I go back to, to the pad and uh, I'm ready to, you know, I'm thinking about this thing, and then I see friends, and I go out, and I talk to guys, and, you know, the whole thing in the evening, you know, just wasting my life, that's right. Well, you know, I go to the ball game or something. Well, it is now 2 o'clock in the morning, and I get back, and I says, well, I think I ought to, I ought to take a look around here and see what I'm going to wear tomorrow. Yeah, I'm gonna be, for once in my life, I'm going to be prepared. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to do it tonight, I'm going to be prepared. So I get out uh, my suit. I'm probably the only guy who wore his eighth grade graduation suit well into his 30s. So uh, I got out my suit. <laughs> you know, I got my suit. So I laid a suit out 
ready to go. And so I I came I came back into my closet. See, I says, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a shirt out. What shirt am I gonna wear? Well, typical of that period in my life, I did not have a clean shirt. So I says, well, I'm going to take this old shirt now, this old rotten shirt, and I'm going to wear this tomorrow. I had a rotten old shirt. In fact, it was like a blue work shirt, the kind that has been uh, shrunk, you know, had the little collars. And it says, on the way there, I'm going to get up early, and instead of getting there at, you know, 10 o'clock was the appointment, I'm going to get out at 9 o'clock, and on the way, I'm going to pick up a brand new beautiful shirt, right? Okay. So I run out of the house the next morning, naturally. I'm already 22 minutes uh, behind my schedule. And I was going to take the shirt and go get it and come back and put it on. Well, it was obviously blown. These guys were going to see me at 10 o'clock. It is now like uh, 20 minutes to 10. So I'm, I'm rushing down. And I go into the shirt place. And I said, give me a shirt, quick, a great shirt. And the guy says, what size? I tell him the size, quick. He says, what color do you want? I says, uh, well, give me something really nice. Now, here's my suit. And he looks at the, oh. He says, oh, well, uh, well, I don't know what would go with that. And I says, well, don't be smart. Give me a shirt. I don't want any editorials. Give me the best you can. So they rush back, and, of course, they come out with this shirt. Well, uh, they had me over a barrel. Uh, I had to make the, the scene in about, uh, you know, about 12 minutes. They laid a $17 shirt on me, uh, just like that, see, so I says, okay. And the guy says, that'll be $17, sir, plus tax. I said, oh, my God, $17. You know, at that point, I was out of work, and that's why I was so anxious about the whole thing. Now, I made a very dumb move. Well, not really, I suppose, because these places are very elegant, and uh, one does not uh, take one's coat off in the joint. And uh, in no way, see, there was a lot of elegant guys already starting to come in there. So I, I should have changed the shirt there, but I didn't. I ran out with the shirt, see. Now... Okay, the audition was to be held in a very large building, which for the argument of tonight we will call the Seagram Building. Anyway, I rush into the building now, and I says to myself, well, now I'm going to have to put this shirt on. I had about four and a half minutes see. So what I did, I was having a meeting at about the 68th floor, way to hell up there someplace, see. So I says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get off at the 67th floor, I didn't want to see me see me up there in case any of them were up in the halls there, see. And I'm going to go to the John there. So at that point, I rush out, and I, I, I tear down the hall looking for the men's room on the 67th floor. I'd never been up there, but very elegant offices all over the place. And there it was, this little thing says, man, see. So I run up. It's locked. What are you going to do? It's one of these places with a key, see. So I didn't know what to do, and I had about three minutes to go. So I, I walked into any office. It was an office. There was a girl sitting there. I says, oh, uh, would you please uh, give me the key to the men's room? They always have the uh, key. She says, oh, are you? Uh, yeah, I says, uh, yes. I said, I have an appointment with Mr. Grubbage. Well, I caught her off balance. She says, well, of course. And she hands me the key. There I did it. See, So I got the key, and it's on a great big wooden thing. So I run down the hall, open it up, and go into the job. Now you got it. Now I'm feeling shepherd's waning. So... <laughs> At that point, I take off my coat, and I start to, you know, take my... And I hear these two guys coming. I hear the key going. So, oh, my God. You know, I don't... I, don't, I look like some kind of a bum in this joint here, changing my clothes and everything, because I don't belong here. So I, I, I hop into the only available stall. There was one little stall in there, see. So I go in a stall. 
at this point you can see that all the conditions are coming together for disaster. I am now in the John, and I can hear these two official types out there, the water running, and they're talking away. Oh, well, look, uh, would you have a JB call? And, uh, uh, yes, uh, I'm uh, going to the Midtown Tennis Club, and I uh, have a lunch. And uh, I'll see you at the Yale Club, Cliff. You know, that kind of stuff. And I'm hiding in the John, and all the while, I've got my shirt off, my rotten, crummy, uh, filthy blue shirt. I have my tie off. And I am frantically taking the pins. Now, if any of you know anything about shirts, you know that the pins uh, in these shirts can... The more expensive the shirt, the more subtle is the placement of pins. Now I've got the shirt in my hand, and half of the arms are hanging down, and I, I, I'm, I'm moving around. See, I'm trying, I don't want to look like I'm doing a whole lot of stuff in there because they're going to get suspicious. Something's going on in the john. And I'm turning around, and this damn thing starts to stick me between the shoulder blades. I get it on. See, it's between the shoulder blades. At that point, I turn around, and it's sticking me. Oh, my God, it's sticking me. I turn back like this, and as I do so, the shirt, I'm pulling it off. The shirt falls right into the pot. I don't think it's funny. I, I don't know why you're laughing. My shirt fell off, and it was a light blue. No, uh, if it was white, it would have not. But it was light blue. It falls right in a pot. Well, I tried to grab it. See, I reached down like that. It starts to fall. And as I did, I reached down. It was an auto. I, have you ever seen these automatic pots? Just as I go, it goes, wow, wow, my damn shirt is going down to John. So I pull it like that. The sleeve is stuck down there. I'm pulling it up like that. Well, of course, these guys are still talking around out there. And here is a guy. They do not realize that here is a man who is in the in the little stall there who is about to see his entire career go down a drain. His shirt is on its way to the East River sewage plant. And it's a $17 brand new shirt. And so I'm pulling this shirt on. It's dripping wet, of course, like that. I'm pulling it out like that. Well, my other shirt. Now, you haven't heard the end of it yet. This thing escalates, as, as in the case of all true disasters, it escalates. I reached around. See, I'm pulling the thing out. I get it half pulled out. Now, my other shirt, my old shirt, I had hung over the toilet paper holder, which was right next to the thing, see. So I'm, I'm pulling this thing, and I go like that, and I brush my shirt. My old shirt goes in. Well, now, you know, I really didn't care about my old shirt, see. So it starts to go down, and with that, that John stuffs up and overflows. Oh, my God. What am I? And it, blah, the water is pouring out like that, and it's going out the door. It's going out underneath. And I hear these guys, oh, say, uh, and one of them says, uh, are, you, uh, are you having any difficulty in there, sir? You know, is there any problem? And I says, no, no, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, no. And it's going, <laughs> and the damn thing wouldn't stop. Now, I've never had any experience with the automatic ones. Uh, you know, usually you, you grab the back off and you start jiggling stuff back. No way with the automatic. That comes out of the wall there, and it's going, wow, wow. And I pull the shirt out, my other shirt, and it goes, boom, and more water pours out. Oh, God, what am I going to do? Now, I'm going to have to tell you something else. This place is a pretty elegant place over there, if you've ever been to the, in the Johns over there in the Seagram building. They don't just have plain water in that thing. They have this stuff that has this blue liquid in it. And it's, it's, it's very heavily laced with some kind of antiseptic. Well, my shirts smelled like the stuff that they put in... <laughs> 
I want to tell you, I smelled like a walking ad for concentrated Lysol. My two shirts are dripping wet, so I says, what the hell am I going to do now? At that point, I put on the new shirt. I said, well, I'm going to go with the new one. At least it's got a nice straight-looking collar. Totally dripping wet. I put my shirt on, get it, get it on like this, and it's dripping wet. The pins are still sticking me in the back. I'm not going to mess with that. I start to, and I'm, I'm looking around. I says, okay, my tie is gone. In the middle of the hassle, the damn tie has gone right down the john and is now on its way to the to the sewage plant somewhere outside of Hoboken. Forget the whole scene. No tie. So at that point, I says, the hell with it. I'm going to go out. I step out, and here these two men are looking, see, because they've heard all this hassling going on, the water pouring out like that. And, man, and one man says, uh, excuse me, sir. And I said, uh, I said, I don't have any time. And I, uh, I could see he's going to ask me, what office do you come from, or where did you get the key? So at that point, I run out into the hall. I run down the hall. I got this little wooden thing with the key on it, see? So I open it up and says, thanks, honey. And I throw it at like that. And I rush over, hit the elevator button. I'm in the elevator now. And there, right in this little antiseptic cubicle, unable to escape, who am I standing there with? The four guys who are going to audition me, my agent, and the lady that's in charge of the account. My shirt is dripping, no tie. I smell like a bottle of Lysol, which, by the way, under certain circumstances, can smell like you've been out a four-week drunk. The door opens, and they, they, all of them look at me, see, the uh, meeting. I says, oh, well, I, I you know, it, uh, gee, you mean you, you missed the rain? It's raining. And, uh, <laughs> and so we walk on down, and it was absolutely dead silence. And uh, we get down to the audition room. We walk in, and uh, my agent says, uh, listen, he says, I don't know what the hell you did, but you sure blew this, Jack. He's whistling, whispering to me in, in my ear, and I says, well, shut up, you fink. I says, don't tell me about who blew what. He says, what do you mean? Look at this. You're like, what, what the hell is that stuff you're dripping? I says, don't worry about that stuff I'm dripping. And so we marched in, brave and honest. The agent and the client, walking tall. They gave me the copy to read. It was supposed to be for a live, on-camera television commercial, smelling like uh, the interior of a Lysol bottle, dripping water all over the place, obviously a totally shifty person, completely. They let me read for maybe, all oh, four or five seconds. I said, well, that's all right, we'll call you. <laughs> it's been nice having you up here. Hi, George. Uh, yes, it's a very interesting reading. And I turned... Pulled in my gut, marched back out into the hall. The agent walked silently with me to the elevator. We waited for it to go down after pressing a little button. The door opened. I stepped in to the elevator. And who is in the elevator? Those two guys from the john. Bring it up. Both looking at me. I think they were going out for the police at that point. You can't imagine Walter Cronkite frantically hiding in a john someplace, trying to get his shoes tied because he changed his socks on the way to an audition. You just can't. And yet I'll guarantee you it has something very similar. <laughs> I mean, it's an absolute fact, an absolute guaranteeable fact. Would you please, I think a little. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to work out, gang. Just be honest, you know. 